on and off for the last couple of years, we've been working our way through the book of Luke. We took September uh, away from Luke, but we come back to it this morning and to the 15th chapter. So if you will, turn to Luke 15. And as we turn there, I think uh, many of you will recognize the passage. It's a passage we've looked at a number of times before. Uh, Even this past summer in Vacation Bible School, some of you taught it, and some of you were here as I taught it to the parents. But we come to it again in God's providence this morning, working straight through the book of Luke. And we'll read now beginning in verse 1. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Father, we thank you for the joy that there is in heaven. We pray that there might be joy today. God, that someone who is here today who needs to repent and to turn to Christ might do so. And God, we pray that all of us would rejoice those of us even who have believed for many years, that we would rejoice remembering what you have done for us, how you have welcomed us and how you continue to welcome us when we trip and fall and sin again and again. Thank you for your mercy. Speak to us and show it to us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When you have four children under the age of seven, there's a lot of losing and finding that goes on in your life. Every week, it seems like, often on multiple occasions, Toby and I find ourselves joining in the search for lost doll slippers or toothbrushes or baseball caps or princess figurines or you name it. Sometimes a left shoe is neatly tucked in the place where it goes, but the right shoe is nowhere to be found. And all of you, I think, know what it's like to have multiple socks who have no matching partner, right? And lately... Lately in the Strassner house, our search has been for pennies. For some reason or other, our children have grown quite enamored with these little brown coins, and they've been collecting them in any way they can. And on one hand, that's provided us with the opportunity to get some very cheap labor out of them. But on the other hand, this fascination with pennies has placed Toby and I several times in the last couple of weeks squarely into the middle of Luke 15, lighting a lamp, sweeping the house, searching searching carefully until some stray coin has been found because those children who collect pennies, as you know, inevitably lose pennies. And the same can be said for adults as well. How many times, pet owners, have you found yourself outside wandering around the perimeter of your property hollering out the name of your animal for everybody in the neighborhood to hear? You done it? Fido! 
Fido, where are you? How many times have you found yourself calling your own cell phone and then fishing around like children playing Marco Polo trying to track the sound? And haven't we all at times had to run our fingers through the couch cushions looking for missing keys or remotes or jewelry? So I say we all find ourselves from time to time living in the middle of this chapter, don't we? And the fact that we do, the fact that we all can immediately relate to the first 10 verses of Luke 15 is another testament just in passing of the mastery of Jesus' teaching, isn't it? No wonder all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to listen to him in verse 1. He knew just how to grab their attention, and he knows just how to turn our eyes to spiritual truth. And his teaching has no less an illuminating effect on us, I hope, at a distance of 2,000 years as it comes in freshness and power than it did on those people way back then. And there's no place in which Jesus' prowess as a teacher is on better display than here in Luke 15. This is a famous chapter. The lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. There's a reason why these stories are so famous and so memorable. Because they're among the greatest stories ever told, the greatest sermons ever preached, and they were given by the greatest teacher who ever lived. And really... Even more impressive than the mastery of Jesus' teaching in this chapter is the message of his teaching. That's why these stories are so famous, isn't it? The meaning of these parables is actually breathtaking if we can get past our familiarity with them and really consider what Jesus has to say. Is God really like a housewife who gets down on all fours and lifts up the apron of the couch looking for lost coins? Is God really like a shepherd who slides down on his back through a narrow cave entrance trying to rescue his lost sheep? Is God really that shameless in his search and rescue mission and looking for lost sinners? Yes. That's exactly what Jesus is saying. We say it reverently when we compare God to a housewife or a shepherd. But yes, God's love for sinners is exactly like this, Jesus is saying. Our Heavenly Father is exactly like this housewife and exactly like this shepherd. He is willing to search and to scrape and, if you will, to get down on his hands and knees, to get his hands and his feet dirty in order to seek and to save that which is lost. Indeed, we know that our Lord was willing to get his hands and his feet bloody in order to seek and to save that which is lost. He was willing to die so that we who, like sheep, have gone astray, Isaiah 53, might be brought home. That's what God is like, willing to go to that extent. And so this morning, as we come to these famous parables again, there's not really anything new for us to say. There's not really anything dazzling or original for me to bring to you or any insight that I can give that perhaps you've never heard before. In fact, as I mentioned, much of what will be said this morning has been said on several prior occasions from this passage and this pulpit and this preacher. And yet I've been praying that God and his love for sinners would come to us and be fresh and revitalizing and powerful to our souls this morning nonetheless. And as we consider that love in these parables, I want to do so under five headings. Five headings, and the first one is this. These parables teach us very clearly the Lord's commitment to sinners. The Lord's commitment to sinners. As we said already, there is a reason why all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to him to listen to him. 
Part of the reason, of course, was Jesus' proficiency and his power as a master teacher. He taught as one having authority, Matthew 7, and not as their scribes. But even more so, all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to him to listen to him because, verse 2, he received people like them and he ate with them. You'll remember that Jesus accepted dinner invitations from people like Levi, the tax collector. Not because he condoned the dishonesty with which Levi probably went about his business, but because he wanted to win Levi to himself. Or we see in John 4 that Jesus sat down and drank water with the woman at the well who had been married five times and was now involved in a sixth adulterous relationship. Not because he approved of her promiscuity, but because he wanted to save her from it. He received tax collectors and sinners, and he ate with them, and that's why all the tax collectors and sinners loved him and listened to him, because they realized that he had not given up on them. And of course, the Pharisees and the scribes in verse 2 misunderstood Jesus' motives, and they misunderstood and recoiled at his practices as well. They evidently had no interest in rescuing such people, and they couldn't understand why any self-respecting teacher would want to. And so they began to grumble there in verse 2 and to say derisively what the sinners must have said with joy. This man receives sinners and eats with them. Can you imagine the difference in the tone of voice and the way they said it and the way the sinners must have said it? This man receives sinners and eats with them. This man receives sinners. Well, That's going to be an important comment to remember when we come to the end of the chapter because Jesus isn't just telling these lost and found parables for the sake of those who know they're lost. He's telling them also for the sake of those like the scribes and the Pharisees who think that they're found. But these first few verses are meant mainly to be a help to the 'er ne'er-do-wells, to the tax collectors and sinners, to the irreligious, to the cultural riffraff of Jesus' day and of our own day. These parables are mainly meant to encourage people who are far from God, but who need to understand that they're loved by God. And these crowds in verse 1 had already seen Jesus receive and eat with people like themselves. And now they begin to hear these stories from his lips that let them know that his heavenly father is of one and the same mind. That the heavenly father is willing to receive these people as well. And so Jesus says to these tax collectors and sinners, with the Pharisees listening as well, of course I eat with the irreligious. Of course my father loves and searches out wandering souls. What man among you, verse 4, wouldn't go in search of a sheep that he lost? And what woman, verse 8, would leave a valued coin hidden in between the couch cushions? Those phrases, what woman or what man among you, are vitally important. They show us that Jesus is using just sheer common sense with these people, just logic. And he's saying to them and to us, of course, if something of yours was lost, you'd go find it, wouldn't you? You would even be willing, Jesus says, to be undignified, to crawl around on your hands and knees, to yell out Fido's name all across the neighborhood in order to find what was lost. So why in the world should it surprise you, Jesus says, if I lower myself to go and search for trashy people, quote-unquote. They belong to me, Jesus says. Of course I'm going to look for them. Of course I'm willing even to look improper in order to do so. Aren't human souls more valuable than sheep? Aren't dying sinners more valuable than coins? And so Jesus says, if you're willing to scrape around on the ground looking for those kinds of things, shouldn't I be willing to dirty my hands looking 
for souls. And of course, that logic has a clear application to the scribes and the Pharisees who are listening, doesn't it? And to their spiritual ancestors. How can we sometimes be so concerned about our lost keys or remote controls or pets and yet so callous towards teenagers around us that we consider as slackers or so callous towards the promiscuous women who come to the food pantry or towards the agnostics with whom we work? May it never be that we would recoil from some person that God is actually searching out. That we would be disgusted by some person for whom Jesus died. That we would never refer to them snidely as tax collectors and sinners. And there's also an application here for the tax collectors and the sinners themselves and to their spiritual ancestors. Do you ever feel like you belong in the company of these people? I do. Sometimes I blow it so bad. Sometimes I'm so disgusted with myself and how I've failed again that I begin to think that while God will surely forgive me in the end, he probably doesn't want to hear my voice right now. Of all the people and of all the times that I could pray to him, now is certainly not the time. He doesn't want to hear from me. And I begin to feel, though I know better in my head, that I really have to clean myself up to a certain extent or beat myself up to a certain extent before my Heavenly Father will be happy with me again. And so my prayer life becomes muffled and my song becomes faint and my joy turns gray. And I picture my services to God many times, whether it be sermons or prayers or counseling or what have you. I picture these things as though they were covered with my greasy fingerprints and not with the blood of Christ. And so I'm glad to hear that Jesus receives sinners and eats with them. And without treating my sins as though they're really no big deal, I need to remind myself, and you need to remind yourself, perhaps, that Jesus really does receive and eat with people like us. He did not delay his meal with Levi the tax collector until Levi should get his act together. And he didn't treat Levi's dishes and silverware as though they were contaminated. He loved Levi. And he loves tax collectors and sinners and failures today. And he loves you and me even in spite of our messes and our sins. And he searches us out, not after we have found ourselves, but while we're still lost. He searches us out while we're still far away, while we're still in our sin. And he died for us so that our standing before God might be based on his merits and not on our own. So we should never allow the self-imposed mess in which we find ourselves to convince us that we may not come to God or that he will not come to us. No. Jesus came, Luke 19, 10, to seek and to save that which was lost. The Lord is committed, not so much to self-righteous persons who think they need no repentance, but to sinners who know that they do. And really, if there were anything I could change about my Christian life, if there were anything I could be more confident in, it would probably be this truth that God loves me even when I sin. That He loves me in spite of my sin, and that when I fail, as I often do, His love for me is not diminished at all. That, as Paul says, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. That my standing with God is really righteous in Christ and no longer dead in sin. Now, I know those things all in my head, and I tell them to you every Sunday, but if I could only believe them when I foul up again, how much happier 
I would often be, and more productive I would be as well. And I would guess that many of you would say the same. So hear it again this morning from this passage. The Lord is committed to sinners, even while they're in their sin. And he's not simply committed to sinners as a big, broad group, though that's true, but even to specific individual sinners. And that brings us to our second heading this morning, namely, the Lord's concern for the individual. We see his commitment to sinners. We see his concern for the individual in this passage. This is marvelously on display here, is it not? God is not in a numbers game. He's not like the prison warden who accurately but coldly knows all the people under his charge by a six-digit number. That's not God. God is not like a warden. God is like a shepherd who delivered each of the sheep at birth and who's given them each a pet name and who knows which one has a cracked hoof and which one has a blind eye and which one won't drink from the bottle. That's what our Heavenly Father is like, Jesus says. He's the God who knows individuals. And even for all the New Testament's emphasis on whole nations and tribes and tongues, hearing the good news, and even for the emphasis on the book of Acts on the thousands who were saved, and the emphasis in the book of Revelation on the myriads of myriads who will come to God through Christ and worship at his feet, these parables remind us that even among those myriads of myriads singing around God's throne, God knows every single one of their individual voices. I had a music teacher like this in high school he could often very astutely decipher each of our individual voices even when we were singing in a group and so he would say sometimes someone's singing an e instead of an f or one of you ladies voices is terribly flat this morning and sometimes he would actually call us by name and he would get it right often the name was mine it seems to me as i recall and he would say i can hear your voice i can hear your specific voice and that's what god is like even among the myriads of myriads only god is even more keen god is able to decipher every single voice good bad or indifferent in a choir as large as the human race and he can pick out each one of us individually and not just when we're singing off key Our Heavenly Father knows every one of your names and every one of your faces and every one of your voices and every face and name and voice in this universe. He doesn't see people by the myriads only or even by the hundreds or even by the tens we're reminded of in these parables. Every individual is important to him. He's like the woman who is not content with nine coins but wants that tenth one. And he's like the shepherd. He's not content with the still good profit margin of having 99 sheep under his care, but who loves the hundredth one and loves it by name. And some people are thrown off by this a little bit, thrown off by this parable of the 99 sheep plus one. And I'll grant to you that it does sound a bit odd at first that Jesus would, or the shepherd would leave the 99 sheep out in the open pasture in search of one single lost lamb. Won't he probably lose more sheep by leaving the 99 unattended than he'll gain by going and finding the one? Well, I'm sure that a shepherd like Jesus has in mind would have someone else working with him. So you don't have to worry about the other 99 sheep. His son or his apprentice or his dog will be there to keep that from happening. And mainly we need to remember this is a parable, right? The point is not that we get tied up in knots wondering what might have happened to the 99, but that we notice how much Jesus cares for the one. That's the point. And that we realize that we are the one. And that we are more valuable to God than any sheep could ever be to any shepherd in this world. I hope that strikes you as helpful. 
and heartwarming this morning. You as an individual are valuable to God. And really, the emphasis there should be on the words, to God. You're valuable to God. It's not that any one of us is intrinsically valuable in and of ourselves on a human level. In other words, what is one lost soul in comparison to the myriads of people who will be in heaven? Not much. Add to that the fact that each of us is sinful, that each of us has strayed from God willingly. In other words, that we are not like unreasoning animals who wander away from the flock in ignorance, but we are human beings made in the image of God with the ability to make decisions, and we turn away from the shepherd willfully. And when we consider how small we are and how insignificant we are and how sinful we have been, we might well wonder if God would search for us at all. But Jesus says, of course he does. Of course he does. Even as numerically insignificant and stubbornly sinful as each of us is, God somehow, because of his great mercy, finds us worthwhile enough to go searching us out individually and to know us by name and to know every hair on our heads, as Jesus said in Luke 12. And that ought to encourage us. You are not a number to God. You are not lost sheep 100. You are not lost sinner 52. Individual heartaches and your hopes and your fears and your joys and your sin problems and the things that you're happy about and the areas where you're doing well and your food preferences and everything else about you. Your Heavenly Father knows more about you than Google does. And that's exciting, isn't it? Our Father knows everything. He knows all of our foibles and our sins and our wanderings. He knows everything that is in your past. He knows the things about which you are rightly ashamed and embarrassed. He even knows the things that you're going to do this week about which you're going to be rightly ashamed and embarrassed, and yet he loves you. And he calls you by name, and if you have faith to believe it, he sent his son to die for every last one of your individual sins. That is the extent of the Lord's concern for the individual. And since he cares for every last one of his sheep by name, it's no surprise when we read in this parable about how thoroughly he seeks them out. Indeed, that's our third heading this morning, namely the Lord's careful searching. His careful searching. I mentioned already that there's a lot of losing and finding that goes on in the Strassner house. And sometimes the finding is quite as accidental as the losing was. That is to say that sometimes while we're attempting to do laundry, we find the missing darts. Or other times while we're emptying the trash, we discover the lost alarm clock. I'm sure all of you have had these kinds of experiences. You're doing spring cleaning or you're packing up your things for a move and you find yourself saying, well, I wondered where that shirt was all this time. And so sometimes we're thankful when we just happen across things and find them and we rejoice just the same. But I want you to notice from these parables that it never works that way when God is finding sinners. When God finds a sinner and saves him, it is never by chance. God finds sinners and saves them according to these parables because he is exacting and thorough in his search for them, just like the woman and her coin in verse 8. You read what it said. She didn't find her lost coin while she was folding clothes, did she? She didn't find it in the bottom of the dryer where we find our coins. No, she found her misplaced Susan B. Anthony because she was carefully searching for it. She was lighting the lamp. She was sweeping the house. She was moving the furniture around, and she was doing all of this until she found the coin. And so it is with God. 
It's exactly that way. He does not find us as a result of happenstance. In other words, God doesn't bump into lost sinners while he's working on other projects and then say, well, how fortunate that we've met today. The stars have really aligned for us, haven't they? No. God's the one who causes the stars to align, right? Figuratively and literally. He's not a God of happenstance. He's a God of providence and sovereignty. And that's part of the message of this passage. God does not wait to save people until, by a series of coincidences or good fortunes, they happen just to run across his path. No. God makes the so-called coincidences and good fortunes to happen. You remember Jonah. God controlled the storm and the fish and the waves, and the unwilling prophet to ensure that the people of Nineveh would hear his word. And it's the same thing here in Luke 15, 8. God sweeps around our lives so that lost people will be found, so that we will see our neediness, so that people will come into our lives sharing good news with us, so that we will hear and believe, and so on. I'm sure many of you can well remember how God at one time was moving around the furniture in your life. Maybe it was through sickness. Maybe it was through a death of a loved one. Maybe it was that a neighbor moved in next to you and began talking to you. Maybe it was that you came around a group of new friends or influences at school. But you can remember how God began to shift things around and move things around. You didn't know it at the time, but now you can look back and say, He was lighting the lamp. He was sweeping the house. He was moving the furniture, moving everything into place so that I would come to Him or come back to Him. And you know full well that none of those things were mere coincidences. And that's how it always works. We come to Christ. We are found by God, not as a result of happenstance, but as a result of a God who is careful in his searching. And if we see things clearly, we'll learn to talk about our conversion in precisely that way. We will say to ourselves, not, boy, how lucky I was to hear the gospel. How lucky I was to grow up in a Christian home. No, we'll say how amazingly God ordained the circumstances of my life in order that I might come to him. And we'll testify to others not so much about how we found God, but about how he found us. We'll gladly and purposefully sing the words of that song. You did not wait for me to draw near to you, but you clothed yourself in frail humanity. And you did not wait for me to cry out to you, but you let me hear your voice calling me. That's what this parable is about. And notice one other thing about this woman and her search for the missing coin. Jesus says that she searches carefully until she finds it. Until she finds it. In other words, once she's begun searching, she does not abort her mission. She is dogged in her pursuit. She is not going to give up until that coin is back in her purse where it belongs. And that's the way God is. When he's searching out a sinner, as when he's doing anything else, God always finishes what he starts. He always continues his pursuit until the sinner is found. Or as Jesus says it in John six thirty seven, all that the Father gives to me will come to me because he searches until we, he finds us. And this ultimately is why any of us were saved. It's not because we were so unrelenting in our pursuit of God, though we may have been pursuing him. It's that he was unrelenting in his pursuit of us. And if we were pursuing him, it's because he was so unrelenting in pursuing us. We're saved because of his careful searching. But now, 
Having said that, under our next heading, we need to notice that while we are saved because of God's searching and not our own, we also need to say that there is something that we must do. So consider, fourthly, fourthly, the Lord's compassion toward the penitent. His compassion toward the penitent. Notice very simply, and in both of these parables, that the sinner who is found is the sinner who repents. You see that in verse 7 and in verse 10. The correlation between the coin and the sheep, the thing that they symbolize is not just a sinner, not just a sinner who's found, but a sinner who's found and who repents. There's joy in heaven over one sinner who repents, verse 7. There's joy among the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents, verse 10. So that is to say that everyone whom God finds and saves will truly repent of their sins. Indeed, this is one of the surest signs that you've been found by God, that you're willing to repent of your sins, that you're able to say with our children's catechism booklet, I'm truly sorry for my sins. I hate them. I want to stop doing them. I want to live to please God. That's what a person says who's truly been found by God. That's what true repentance (laughs) says. It's not just that we're truly sorry because we've been caught for our sins. And it's not just that we hate the consequences of our sins. And it's not that we just want to live in heaven with God. It's that we hate and are sorry for our sin itself. And we truly want to live to please God, whether on earth or in heaven. That is repentance. And that's what happens when God searches us out and when he finds us. True repentance means that we hate our sins for God's sake and not just our own. There is a kind of faux repentance that turns from sin and feels sorry about it purely for selfish reasons. I don't like my sin because it's detrimental to me or brings about judgment upon me. But that's not true repentance. True repentance is when we grieve over how our sins have offended God and how our sins have besmirched his name and grieved his spirit and sent his son to die that death on the cross. That's what true repentance looks like. It's not mere self-preservation. It's true God-directed grief over our transgressions. And those who have been truly found by God will inevitably, alongside faith in Jesus, possess this grace of repentance toward God. So let me ask you, are you the coin? Are you the sheep? Are you truly penitent? Are you truly sorry for your sins? Not just that you've been caught, not just that there's consequences. Are you truly sorry for your sins themselves? And do you actually hate them and want to stop doing them? And do you really want to live to please God? Now, I know all of us do those things imperfectly. I understand that. But is there evidence, even if ever so imperfect, in your life of true repentance? Are you a Christian? If the answer is no, then could it be that the very reason you're here this morning is because God is searching you out? Could the fact that you're being confronted right now with your lack of repentance or with your faux self-preserving repentance be a part of God sweeping the house and moving the furniture and making you uncomfortable so that you would come to him? And if he's doing those things, would you come to him in repentance and in faith? And if the answer to my question is yes, if you are penitent towards God, then praise God for his compassion to you. Praise him that he found you. Praise him that he searched for you until he found you. 
Praise Him that He rescued you from your sins. Because if He did, for those who repented and placed their faith in Christ, God has nothing but mercy and blessing and glory stored away for them. We'll see that even more clearly next week, Lord willing, when we come to the parable of the lost son. The Lord's compassion, and specifically the Lord's compassion toward the penitent, is what these parables are all about. And we ought to praise Him for it. And this exhortation to praise Him for His compassion brings us to our final heading, namely, the Lord's call to rejoicing. Rejoice with me, says the shepherd in verse 6. For I found my sheep which was lost. Rejoice with me, says the woman also in verse 9. For I found the coin which I had lost. Rejoice with me. And evidently our Heavenly Father speaks the same way to His friends in heaven. Because we read in verse 10 that there's joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So if you can picture the shepherd going out the front door and saying to all of his friends, hey, come rejoice with me. Or the woman going out the back door to her neighbors who are outside doing their things in their houses and saying, hey, everybody come rejoice with me. I found my coin. Then you can picture God sitting on his throne in heaven and looking out upon the angels who are worshiping him and saying, come and rejoice with me because I found the lost sheep. Isn't that amazing to consider? Every time a sinner repents, Every time a a single solitary sinner repents, the angels blow their trumpets and have a party. We should be amazed at that. It makes me think of being at the Reds game with the kids. As you may know, every time a Reds player hits a home run, they shoot off fireworks behind the right center field fence. You can hear them from here on a clear day. And I remember being at the game with Andrew when he realized how this whole routine worked, that home run equals fireworks. And for the rest of the nine innings, he sat there waiting for the fireworks to go again and saying repeatedly, when are they going to shoot the fireworks again, Dad? And oh, that we might have ears equally attuned and eager for the fireworks in heaven when one sinner repents. Oh, that we might find that the joy in the presence of the angels of God would be an incentive to us to be out in the highways and hedges sharing the good news of Christ so that sinners might repent and so that heaven might rejoice. We should also say that these words about the angels rejoicing were intended by Jesus as a subtle jab at the scribes and the Pharisees. Remember, they're sitting there as well listening. And he says this partly for them. You'll remember in verse 2 that they weren't overtly excited about sinners repenting. Evidently, these men didn't think it was desirable for prostitutes and tax collectors and church skippers and the like to be joining their ranks in the synagogue. And they certainly didn't think it was proper for a rabbi like Jesus to be attending their cookouts and trying to win them to God. They liked their little religious club just the way it was, and they didn't want any riffraff applying for membership in it. And so they grumbled. And this... Inside information that Jesus gives in verses 6 and 9 about the celebration that goes on behind the closed doors of heaven was meant partially for these men to dress them down a little bit and to dress down churchgoers today who mutter under their breath, we don't want anyone like that coming to our services. And Jesus is saying to them, instead of pouting and grumbling, you ought to be rejoicing. The angels are rejoicing. Why aren't you? And he'll say the same kind of thing about the other son when we come to the end of the chapter. So let this be a warning to any of us who have trouble rejoicing when a sinner repents. 
Whether we have trouble because of that person's sordid background or because of the baggage that she might actually carry into the church with her or because he repented in someone else's church or because we're so theologically nitpicky that we can't imagine someone actually repenting of their sins and trusting in Christ by means of a less than perfect gospel presentation. Let us beware of not rejoicing when people repent and come to Christ. And I have to confess to you that I struggle with that last example. But the ability of the angels, who are far more theologically astute than I am, the ability of the angels to rejoice over every last sinner who truly repents is a rebuke to me. But perhaps the greatest rebuke of all, for me anyway, is that I'm sometimes not able to rejoice with God and his angels over my own salvation. We ought to rejoice over that just as we rejoice over others, oughtn't we? We ought to rejoice even more because we know how unlikely it really was for us. And yet there are many Christians, some in this room, who wrestle with this same deficiency, an inability to rejoice in our own salvation. Sometimes I think it's that we begin to think that once we've repented and once we've come to Christ, then this message about Jesus dying on the cross for our sins is really for other people. I mean, we believe it, but we don't really need to keep hearing it. They're the ones who need to hear it, the ones who are lost. I well remember the time when a lady was very passionate to urge me that we should always give an altar call at the end of our services. And we have good reasons for not doing that, which we don't have time to go in today. But this lady very much felt like she had good reasons why we should. And she said them to me something like this. When I come to church, I come in order to see people going that, down that aisle and being saved. And in effect, when I don't see that happening, I don't feel like I've had a good Sunday. I don't feel like I've gotten what I came for. In other words, what she was telling me was hearing the gospel for herself was not what lit her fire, but only as it affected other people. And I appreciated her heart for evangelism. She really did want to see people saved. But I wanted to say to her, even if we never saw anyone else saved, we're poor indeed if hearing the gospel doesn't cause us almost to want to go down the aisle again ourselves if we come and rejoice only when other people are being saved but have lost our sense of wonder that god should have ever saved a wretch like me more's the pity if we can hear the gospel clearly and warmly preached and leave the service not having gotten what we came for then we've lost something important namely the joy of our own salvation and to think, with, to think like this is a great deficiency. And there's another reason why we often lose our wonder, I think, and fail to revel in the joy of our own salvation. And it's just what I said earlier about myself. Somehow, though we know in our heads that God could never love us any more or any less than he already loves us in Christ, though we know in our heads that our standing with him is based on Christ's merits and not our own, and though we know in our heads that God receives and welcomes sinners, when we keep messing up, as all of us do, we allow Satan to convince us against our better judgment that God probably now has us on a sort of probationary period. That God is going to give us the cold shoulder for a few days. That we're going to be in God's doghouse for a while until we can get things right and prove that we're back on track. And we think of God that way. And consequently, many of us lose our joy. And it's a sad thing. Some of us perhaps had parents or teachers or coaches who operated on that kind of system. When we messed up, they gave us the silent treatment 
for a few days or a few hours to let us know how much they disapproved. And their love for us waxed and waned with how well we were achieving that week. But that's not God's way, clearly. This passage shows us that that's not God's way. The full price for our justification, for our adoption as sons and daughters of God, for our reconciliation to God has been paid in full in the blood of Jesus. And so God always, always, always sees us through the lens of his gospel and through the blood of his son, forgiven, whole, and clean. Surely he doesn't like our sin. And sometimes the Bible says the Holy Spirit is grieved over our sin, but God never stops loving those who are in Christ because of their sin. And he never turns away from those who are penitent. We saw it in Psalm 51 a few weeks ago. A broken and a contrite heart, O Lord, you will not despise. And therefore, so long as I'm willing to repent of my wrongdoing, there's no reason for me to lose the joy of it my salvation. There's no reason for me to doubt the love of God. There's no reason to think that I'm not welcome at God's table. And so I hope that you'll hear the voice of God in verses 6 and 9 as we draw to a conclusion. And I hope that you will, on your own behalf, heed the voice of God as he says to us, his friends, rejoice with me. Rejoice with me. Father, we do rejoice. We thank you that you carefully, mercifully search out that which is lost and you find it and you save it. We thank you that you've done that for us. We thank you that you didn't give up on your project. We thank you that you seek us out even while we're still in our sins, that you don't wait for us to draw near to you, but that you did come in the person of your son and lay down your life for us and that even Now, when we need to be crying out to you and we don't, you let us hear your voice calling us. God, all these are reasons for us never to lose our joy and never to stop rejoicing. So help us now to stand and to rejoice in Christ and in your great love for us, our Heavenly Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.